the theme of this retreat, enlightenment and love, it comes from this experience which I had about 16 years ago. I was, um, I was in a retreat uh, in the Himalayas in Gangotri. I was staying alone in a, in a wooden cabin. Would go um, twice a day to, for bhiksha, for food from where the monks are served, and spend my days in meditation and study. And the book that I had taken with me for study was this one, Ashtavakra Gita. Not this particular copy, but though I still do have the copy which I had taken with myself then. Now, I would meet these wonderful monks and different, you know, I would go out and meet them. One of them, who was my neighbor, was a most wonderful old Swami. Uh, when I met him, he asked me a little bit about myself and he asked me what practices I was doing. What are you studying? In Hindi, he asked me, uh, what are you studying? And I said, I've got the Ashtavakra I'm studying. I've, I had taken on this only one book. It's my favorite book, so this is what I would go off to the mountains with. Then he said, that is good, but you take this book also, read this book also. And he pulled out a book in Hindi. It was The Thousand Names of Vishnu, a devotional text. The Thousand Names of Vishnu Sahasranama with a uh, Hindi commentary. And then he said, you read this along with that book. Then he said something in Hindi, nahi to akela pan chubega aapko. Um, translated that means, you know, loneliness will bite you. This loneliness here in this tremendous solitude, it'll get you. Not that I mean that, you know, you'll feel lonely here. We all have got all, all of us for, to keep us holy company. But the deeper meaning of his advice was, it's very sound advice. That to combine not only the path of knowledge, a very austere, non-dualistic text, and doesn't get more non-dualistic or more austere than Ashtavakra, with devotion. And it's very good, uh, at least uh, for a long time in spiritual life. Uh, it is very nourishing, it's very wholesome. So that's what this, uh, I trace the theme for this way back, so many years back. Enlightenment and love, and we know in Vedanta what it means. The moment we say enlightenment and love in Vedanta, we know what it means. We're talking about jnana yoga and bhakti yoga. Is this too loud? It's all right? Yeah. So jnana yoga and bhakti yoga, the way of knowledge and the way of devotion. The way of knowledge, we understand what it means. We have studied it again and again. Advaita Vedanta tells us that our real nature is that we are Brahman, the absolute reality, existence, consciousness, bliss. We are that, we do not know it. And if we were to know it, if we were to know, realize what we truly are, then that would actually solve our problems at the deepest level. It would take us beyond suffering forever and it would give us fulfillment. What we are in fact searching for in life, in all our endeavors and projects, all of that will be accomplished, all of that will be accomplished if we uh, realize our true nature, if we realize that we are this absolute reality, Brahman. This is a path of knowledge. 
But the problem starts there. Path of knowledge, what does it mean? It means it's so different from what we are normally uh, accustomed to that it's worth dwelling on this. It, I mean, we are very, very eager to get on with it, but it's first of all worth dwelling on it because we are preconditioned in whatever we do, in any kind of you know, worldly endeavor, religious endeavor, we have this thing, we have to do something. You see, it's obvious, we have to do something. This is a deeply ingrained um, trait in us, and with good reason. Because whatever we have done in life, we, have to, we had to do something. To come to this retreat, it took a lot of work you know, by the volunteers and all of the participants. You had to come here. So, doing versus knowing, this is something that has to go deep into uh, this, this distinction must be made clear, something we must dwell upon. Um, the more this distinction becomes clear, the more powerful and effective Advaita Vedanta will be in our lives. Often, as we go ahead in our study of Advaita Vedanta, think about it, the problems that we encounter uh, at a pretty late stage, they can be traced back to a lack of clarity about this issue. What is the role of doing and what is the role of knowing? Swami Atmapriyanandaji, some of you have met him, he used to tell us the story about his early days as a brahmachari uh, in the training center at our main monastery at Belurmat. Uh, so we had one uh, great acharya, a, a teacher, Swami Mukhyanandaji, who has passed since. He was a great scholar of uh, Vedanta, and he had this interesting way of teaching. What he would do is, so this is an example, he's sitting in the class, and trying to make this distinction. So he looks at the brahmacharis, the, the young novices, the novice monks are sitting there, uh, and he says, pointing to the garden outside, he had a high-pitched voice, and Swami Atmapriyanji is a good mimic, you know, he, he says, he said to us, look, the grass is green. And the other monks looked puzzled at each other, and they looked outside, indeed, the grass was green, but, well, so, they looked quizzically at the teacher and the teacher said, the master said, the grass is green. Then he, then he said, fools, get me a glass of water. Immediately a few of them jumped up. This was something they could do. And they jumped up to get a glass of water. Again he said, fools, sit down. <laughs> now what did he mean by this? The grass is green is a fact. It doesn't do us much good to know that, but it's a fact. And what you have to do with a fact is to know it. And get me a glass of water is an action. It can be something that can be done. This is an important distinction to understand when you go into the path of knowledge, the path of enlightenment. In this path, it's like the grass is green. Much better than that, but still it's like that in nature. It's not like, get me a glass of water. In this path, the spiritual journey is not from one place to another. It's not from New York, from Manhattan to New Jersey. It'll go from one place to another, from this world to heaven, from here to Vaikuntha or, or uh, you know, uh, Goloka or something, the, the heavens which are promised 
in dualistic religions. That's a journey, physical journey or a post-mortem journey. No, in this, in this path, it's, it's not a path where you have to cover a, like a journey, you have to go from one place to another. It's also not a, a journey in uh, time. It's not that you have to wait. So we have to wait for the retreat to start. We have to wait for this day to come for the retreat to start. You can't go around anywhere and get the retreat. It's a journey in time. You have to wait. So do you have to wait until I die and after death I will find God? It's not like that also. It's not a journey in time. It's not even a journey to some other thing. You know, anything else like a glass of water. You have to obtain it. You have to attain it. Whether it's a glass of water or it's heaven. If this is not heaven and heaven is something else, it has to be obtained. It has to be attained. Here, there is no movement from yourself to another object. Rather, what is being spoken about is you, yourself. Aha, we will say, yes, but not exactly like this. Something then, you know, I will be, I am this poor little guy now, but I will be this amazing Brahman. No, exactly as you are right now. Not what you think of yourself, not what you think you know about yourself, but what you are. So how does that help? Vedanta says what we are right now, here itself, and everywhere and at all times, what we are, we do not know this. We are deeply mistaken about what we are. So Vedanta is Advaita Vedanta is the path of enlightenment about what? About ourselves. What good does it do? The truth about ourselves is not known to us and when it becomes known to us it's so amazing that it actually solves all our problems. To get that result, the solution to all our problems, Atyantika Dukkha Nivritti Paramananda Praptischa, the complete cessation, transcendence of all suffering, I'm using the words carefully, transcendence of suffering. I'm not saying exactly that aches and pains will stop and disease will not come and death of the body will not come. I'm not saying that. I'm saying transcendence of suffering and attainment of effortless, complete, unchangeable fulfillment. That will come when we realize ourselves as what we truly are. So knowledge is the spiritual journey here. Um, from ignorance to knowledge, from not knowing the truth about ourselves to being enlightened about the truth about ourselves. That is the journey. And immediately comes the problem here. The problem is this. The knowledge that we understand is always knowledge of objects. It could be knowledge of a place, it could be knowledge of a person, it could be knowledge of, about a subject, it could be knowledge about you know, the subtlest of things like the COVID virus or about super strings or whatnot. It could be general knowledge, you know, which you go in a quiz and all kinds of knowledge. They're always knowledge about objects. We also have knowledge about ourselves, the subject. But what we consider normally knowledge about the subject is also object, body, an object. The internal workings of the body, object. Even psychology, the, what is going on in the mind, our thoughts, feelings, ideas, complexes, subconscious motives and drives, object. Why do you call them an object? Aren't they generally thought to be the subject? It's an object because you are aware of it. It's an object because you know it. 
Now, what Vedanta is talking about, the knowledge of the self, what Advaita Vedanta is talking about, the knowledge of the self, we have all heard again and again. It's not an object. It's the pure subject. It is that to which all the objects appear. Because it is not an, not an object, our common sense idea about knowledge also does not apply here. See, already we have got two, two big hurdles to cross. Our common sense idea about achieving something, doing something doesn't apply here. And it's knowledge that we want. But our common sense idea about knowledge also doesn't apply here. Unfortunately, that's the problem. It's actually very simple. It's actually very direct. But it's, you know, that's the whole problem. It's so simple, except that it's hidden in the most obvious of places. <laughs> that story about, uh, uh, you know, in, in India, long distance trains. So you go on a journey, it might take one or two days. And one man was traveling with a lot of money. And there was this other person, there's a thief always on the lookout for an opportunity to steal things, you know. So he's sitting and he uh, notices this man takes out the money and counts it and puts it, stuffs it back and puts it away. And he was waiting to, for the man to fall asleep at night so that he could steal the money. And at night the man fell asleep, finally this, the thief snuck out of his own bunk, the train is going, racing into the Indian night, and he sneaks into the place where the man is sleeping, that man's bunk, and he begins to carefully search, no money. And he's scared, the man shifts this way, that way, so he gets scared. He searches, he couldn't find it. And uh, time to wake up, so he goes back to his bunk. Again he tries the ne next night, the last night of the journey, can't fight it. And then next morning he can't bear it anymore. He'd done such a thorough search of, of that man's positions. Nowhere. So he asks, finally breaks down and confesses to that traveler. Sir, I must confess, I'm a thief. And I noticed you have a lot of money. But for, I mean, I just couldn't find it. <laughs> Won't you tell me, I mean, this curiosity is eating me away. <laughs> Where did you hide it? And the man said, oh, I know what you are up to, no good. So I hid it under your pillow. <laughs> In our case, it's worse. If it's under a pillow, we might even stumble <laughs> upon it. It's hidden in us. We ourselves, not even in us. We ourselves are it. Now, how do you get hold of that? How do you get, how do you know the knower? Very old question. In the Brihadaranyak Upanishad, Vigyataramare Kena Vijaniyat. Husband and wife are talking. The husband is asking the wife a um, rhetorical question. How can one know the knower? How does the subject objectify itself? Impossible. And yet it has to be done. So how is it done? Is it possible or not? People think it's not possible. The great uh, philosopher David Hume, he says, I've searched for the self carefully and I look introspect within myself. I just find a series of thoughts and feelings and memories and emotions and ideas. Where is this self? David Hume, so perceptive. And the same tradition. I was just listening to a video clip of Susan Blackmore, who is a leading consciousness uh, researcher in England. Um, she was saying in an interview, 
It's an illusion. There's no such thing as a self. Why? She says, I have meditated for 20 years. She's a scientist. For 20 years I've meditated and I do not find anything which corresponds to the self. Now the answers to, to Hume and to Susan Blackmore about 500 years ago in uh, Panchadashi, the Vidyaranya Swami, a great post-Shankara master of Advaita Vedanta, he says, the self is not to be found, it is not found, not because it does not exist, but because it's not an object. Whatever you're looking for, whatever you can find is not the self. Because whatever you find is an object. Then there is no self, that would be the next mistake. Exactly what Hume said or today Susan Blackmore is saying. That there is no self. He says, no. To whom is the absence of the self? To whom is this inquiry that I am looking for the self and I do not find the self? To whom is it appearing? It is to the self. To, even to conclude that there is no self to be found, you require the self. Self means in the sense of awareness. It is to awareness. The conclusion is reached. There is no self to be found. Only in the presence of awareness. Not new. This answer is not new. It goes back more than 5,000 years in the Taittiriya Upanishad. After a thorough examination of whatever we think we are, starting with the body, the physical self, the, uh, the physiological self, the, um, the mental self, the intellectual self, and beyond that the causal body, the panchakosha, examining whatever, why do they examine the annamaya, pranamaya, manomaya, vijnanamaya, anandamaya, you know, the five sheets, why do they examine it at all? Because they are searching for the so-called self, the atman. And they find matter, they find vitality, they find thoughts and feelings, they find um, um, knowledge, they find blankness in deep sleep. None of it is the self. Why not? Because it's an object. The self, by definition, must be the subject. It's not the subject, it's an object. And then the question, the same question is what, what David Hume says, what Susan Blackmore today says. Five thousand years ago, the same question. Then Asadhiti then it does not exist. The so-called promised Atman, Satchidananda, whatever you call it, doesn't exist then. Can't find it. Asad Brahmaiti Vedachet Asanneva Sabhavati, the Taittiriya Upanishad says in Brahmananda Valli, the one who comes to the conclusion that Brahman, Atman, Self does not exist, he will himself become non existent. Obviously, you are not non existent, you do exist, then what is the Self? Interesting, you follow this carefully, that once you exhaust every possible answer, you clearly see whatever you think could be I is not I. Even this I, the feeling of I, this mental function, the ego, even that is not I because I am aware of it. It's, a, it's an object. Therefore, you exhaust every possible option and then you still don't find it. Yet it is there. How do you find it? How do you realize? How do you, how is the pure subject, the self, how is it to be known. This is the second big problem in self-knowledge because it's not like any other knowledge at all. Kain Upanishad says, uh, 
Anya devatad vidita datho avidita dathi. It is beyond anything that you know. It's not any, do you know it? Yes, you see tentatively, then it's not it. I'm sorry. Okay, I don't know it. It's not that either. It's other than the known, other than the unknown. So in this way it has been pointed out, how do you know the, uh, what cannot be objectified? It's a bit like, you know everything, you see everything with your eyes right now. You're seeing everything with your eyes. But you can't see your eyes with your own eyes. Um, there is one way, if you bring a mirror or if you take a selfie of your face, you can see the eyes. But what you are seeing is not the eyes themselves directly. You're seeing a reflection of your own eyes. You're seeing a picture, a photograph of your own eyes. Similarly, you need a mirror which will show you, show us the self, the real self, the Atman. And that mirror is Vedanta. This is what Vedanta is. It's a mirror. Not a very good example, but Okay, I mean, you have to just take the point of that, that it's something that shows us just as what you see in the mirror is not the real eyes, but good enough. Using that, you can understand what the eyes are. There also a person might make, a foolish person might make a mistake and say, okay, I got the eyes, saw the eyes, it's there in the mirror. No, but that's, you have to know how to use the mirror. Similarly, the Vedanta will show us how I am Brahman. If you know how to use Vedanta, that realization will come. It is possible because this is of the nature of awareness, self-luminous, it reveals itself and it reveals everything else. It shines itself and everything is revealed in its light. Because it shines, it does not need another light to reveal it. Just like these lights, they shine and they reveal the entire hall. And you don't need another light to reveal this light. So the Atman is like that, and yet we are missing it all the time. I remember this amazing senior monk who is no more now. Um, I was a novice once, it was about maybe 25 years ago. This little ashram in a village. Um, this monk was sitting and I went to him and out of nowhere, I was a novice, I mean among other novices, he just looks at me and he says, you know, Vishwarup, we are missing it a thousand times every moment. My name is Vishwarup, so you would call me Vishwarup. I just met him just once or twice. And that one time I still clearly remember. He looks at me, we are missing it a thousand times every moment, which means it's continuously shining forth. Very obvious, we are missing it. We won't. Tomorrow onwards, we will be acquainted with it. We'll know, learn how to use the mirror. The mirror, what is this Vedanta? It is the Upanishads. It is the Upanishads. Upanishad nama Vedanta Pramanam. Uh, Vedanta nama Upanishad Pramanam, sorry. Vedanta nama Upanishad Pramanam. Upanishads are the source of knowledge. It's the mirror and it's the source of knowledge called Vedanta. Vedanta is a source of knowledge and it's constituted by the Upanishads, these texts called Upanishads. So they are the foundation of Vedanta. I'm coming to why the Ashtavakra. So what, why, why did we have, what, what is this actually? Upanishads are the foundation of Vedanta. And uh, the 
practical implications of the Upanishads, how do you live the teachings of the Upanishads? You find in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna teaches Arjuna directly from the Upanishads. The wisdom of the Upanishads is embodied in the Bhagavad Gita. If you read the Bhagavad Gita, actually you have read what the essence of what the Upanishads have to teach. And then there is another text called the Brahma Sutras, where the philosophical issues arising from the Upanishads are worked out. These three together, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita and the Brahma Sutras together are the foundational texts of Vedanta. We all know this, it's called Prasthanatrai, the triple foundation, the triple canon, the canonical texts of Vedanta. And they are usually studied with the help of the commentaries written by Adi Shankaracharya. We are now firmly in the tradition of Advaita Vedanta. So I'm talking about Advaita Vedanta. But apart from these source books, these root texts, these foundational texts, apart from them, there is a whole range of books which are called Prakaranas. Often these Prakaranas are introductory texts. They either introduce us to the essential message of Advaita Vedanta or some part of it. And uh, they, are, they have been written by masters after Shankaracharya uh, based on the Upanishads, based on Shankara's commentaries to make the whole thing easier, more digestible. The Upanishads are vast. Commentaries are vast and sub-commentaries even more vast. So before you plunge into the ocean, you learn swimming in a swimming pool. So uh, the teachings in the Prakarana Granthas, the texts, are the same as what you find in the Upanishads. And we have done some. In our own group, we have studied in the Drik Drishya Viveka. That's a Prakarana which is, which is written about 600 years ago. We have studied the Aparokshanubhuti. It was written by Shankaracharya more than 1300 years ago. Um, we have studied the Vedanta Sara, probably the best known Prakarana, introductory text. The traditional Vedanta students are introduced to Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, through Vedanta Sara. We completed that. This is not cumulative, by the way. Each of those texts, Vedanta Sara, Vivek Chudamani, Drigdrishya Viveka, Parakshanabhuti, Atma Bodh, any of these texts, they all tell you the same thing. Upanishads also. Each of them tells you exactly the same thing. But you need this 101 different ways of explaining, pointing out the same thing to us. <coughs> Why? Because I told you there are these simple but almost insurmountable obstacles. One is the very nature of the quest, not a doing, but a realizing, being enlightened. This realizing, being enlightened is a kind of knowledge, but it's not knowledge as we know it, another big obstacle. So that's why you need so many ways of pointing out something that is so, actually, ultimately, you'll see, so utterly obvious. It's the most obvious of all things. Now, among all these texts, there are some which are very heavy on reasoning and argumentation. So, these are called Vada Granthas, dialectical texts. Well known among them is Sri Harsha's Khandana Khanda Kadya, about a thousand years ago. It literally means, Khandana Khanda Kadya means cookies, literally. In Bengali, Mishti we say, cookies, cookies of refutation. And then there is Tattva uh, Pradipika or Chitsukhi. These are extremely difficult texts. 
I first heard of Chitsuki when I was a novice and my teacher in Vedanta, he was studying this under a very great scholar. Uh, he would go every week, once a week, um, travel a long distance in Calcutta by bus. You know what a bus journey in Cal Calcutta is like. And he would go every week there and he would study and come back. Once I accompanied him too. A very great scholar was teaching that. And when I, when I joined the order as a brahmachari, that, they were studying that, that group was studying that text. It's just a group like this, they were studying that text. I think they're still studying it. <laughs> Dr. Bose asked me, so they read it many times? I said, no, they haven't completed it even once. <laughs> and then there is the other one, uh, the Advaita Siddhi, which is, um, written by Madhusudan Saraswati, Establishment of Non-Duality in the Face of Attacks from Dualistic Schools. So, we talked about the Triple Foundation, Prasthanatrai, Upanishads, Gita, Brahma Sutras. Um, these three, these are not well known at all, other than only few scholars study them. Uh, these three, Khandana Khandakhadya, Chitsukhi, Tattva Pradipika, and Advaita Siddhi, are together known as Brihat Prasthanatrai, the vaster foundation. But they are meant only for, I mean, do you need to know them? No. They, and they teach you, do they teach you some super Advaita? No. They teach you the same Advaita which you get in the smallest Advaita texts. At the other extreme are little hymns. One was being chanted earlier, Dakshinamuti Stotram. Even smaller, the, um, the Pratasparana Stotram, contemplating Brahman at dawn, you know, just three verses. Manisha Panchakam, five verses on wisdom by Shankaracharya. Just in five verses, in three verses. Shankaracharya has also written Ekashloki, one verse. And it, it teaches you the entirety of Vedanta. And it should not surprise us. It can be Vedanta is actually the beauty is it's so elegant. I was just reading Michio Kaku's The God Equation, where he says. Elegance, symmetry, is one sign of truth. In physics, in mathematics, we look for symmetry in uh, elegance. It's so elegant, all this vast literature can be, com can be compressed into one sentence. Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Tattvamasi, that thou art. Pragyanam Brahma, consciousness itself is Brahman, the ultimate reality. I am Atma Brahma. This very self is Brahman. This is Swami. That's four sentences. No, they all are the same sentence. They all mean exactly the same thing. In one sentence, just short sentence, entirety is compressed there. And it goes further. It can be put in just Om. Om, that's it. We studied Mandukya. You know, the whole of Mandukya is compressed into Om. And can go further. Silence. Maunam Vyakhyanam. Maunam Vyakhyanam. There is a, a master once said, the highest teaching of Advaita Vedanta is for the, the most qualified students who will get it just like that. It is the silence of the Dakshinamurti Stotram. Maunam Vyakhyanam. The master sits in silence and the doubts of the disciples are dispelled. Gurostu maunam vyakhyanam shishyaha chinna samshaya. The guru sits, uh, explains, he is giving a talk in silence. The talk is silence and the students, are, their doubts are dispelled. That's the 
highest teaching of, of Advaita Vedanta. For um, ordinary students, he says, more the middle category are the sutras, the very compact sayings, the, the, the aphorisms, the Brahma Sutras of Vyasa, Badaraya and Vyasa. And for the lowest category of students are all the commentaries written by Shankaracharya. Then forget all the other texts which were written later on for, for the rest of us. So that's one. Now where is this book, Ashtavakra? There are books which are meant for hearing, there are books which are meant for reasoning, there are books which are meant for, for meditation. You know the process in Advaita Vedanta, how do you handle, how do you handle the mirror? You shravana, manana, nididhyasana. You listen to the teaching, study it with the teacher, shravana. You think it through. Every possible question you should think it through and get answers to your satisfaction. Including many questions which may not have arisen to you. We cannot think of such questions which have been raised by uh, you know, philosophers and thinkers through the ages. You go through as many as you need and you get clarity about it. That is the second stage, manana. And there are texts for both. And there are texts for meditation. Once you have got clarity, you stay with it. Nididhyasana. The Upanishads are shravana. That's where you get the truth. There are texts like Advaita Siddhi and all, those are extreme examples, but every text more or less has a portion of dialectics, question and answer and clarification. That is manana. Advaita Siddhi is par, exam, par excellence. Khandakhadya, Chitsuki, all of these texts. And then finally, I like to consider these, I mean technically these would also be one kind of a prakarana, but these are nididhyasana texts. Once we have clarity about what is being taught, what has been said, we need to keep seeing it. And that's what Ashtavakra does. Matchlessly. The highest truth, we have got some clarity about it, he just tells it to us in a grand monotony. All the chapters, all the verses, wherever you touch this book, there is no development of subject. He starts out at the highest, you are Brahman, he says. And the next thing he says is that you are Brahman. And then he tells you that you are Brahman. And that's what he says all throughout. Yeah. One of the translations which I found a few years ago was this book. It's a free translation of Ashtavakra. This is one of the translations, this translation which I prefer. It's by Swami Nityaswarupananda, uh, published by Advaita Ashram. And it's um, precise. So that you need to have the precise uh, meaning of the Sanskrit texts. Uh, but it is a poetic and free, I think it captures the spirit very nicely in English. So by, and he was a professor of English and very spiritually inclined himself. Thomas Byron. And uh, it's called The Heart of Awareness. I just want to read out a couple of lines which he has written in the introduction to this text. So I just want to read that out. He says, Ashtavakra's words begin after almost everything else has been said. They barely touch the page. How beautifully it's written. They barely touch the page. They are often on the point of vanishing. The words. They are the first melting of the snow high in the mountains 
a clear stream flowing over smooth and shining pebbles. Theirs is the radiance of the winter sky above Trishul, Kailash, Annapurna. My Guru, Neem Karoli Baba, called the Ashtavakra Gita the purest of the scriptures. All its beauty is in the transparency, its enraptured and flawless purity. Ashtavakra is not concerned to argue. No arguments here. This is not speculative philosophy. It is a kind of knowledge. Ashtavakra speaks as a man who has already found his way and now wishes to share it. His song is a direct and practical transcript of experience, a radical account of ineffable truths. He speaks, moreover, in a language that is for all its modesty, physical and direct. No arguments, no flourishes, no stories. It's set as a dialogue between Ashtavakra and the Emperor Janaka, but that's just the background, that's the framework. And it's so uniform all throughout, whichever verse you take, whichever chapter you take, it's saying the same thing. It's like the ocean water, it's salty at the top, salty in the middle, salty at the bottom, everywhere you taste, it's exactly the same. Now one more thing, and before I move on, so Ashtavakra Gita, fine. Um, why the particular selection, chapter 15, and verses, uh, I think, 4 till the end, 4 to 20 or something, yes. Why? Uh, because a few years ago in our uh, Vedanta Society in Chicago, in the Ganges retreat there, they have a retreat house, uh, I found a slim, really thin, like a booklet, like a set of notes which they had published and they were selling for one dollar. And the last copies were being, this, this, they were, you know, it, it's something that is completely unknown. So I picked it up because I, I had heard and read a little bit about the author, Swami Nishreya Shanji, who was the disciple of Swami uh, Shivanandaji, I think. And he established the Vedanta's work in South Africa many, many decades ago. But he did come to the United States a number of times, and there are people here who have seen him. Did, did you saw him? Yes. By all accounts, the most remarkable Swami, and I really like his teachings. So, in some, he gave a retreat in uh, in the Ganges retreat, uh, retreat. There, he taught Vedanta. Swami Yogeshananda, who passed away a few months ago at the age of 95 in Trabuco, in the Vedanta Society of Southern California in Orange County. He was a young monk and he took down those notes and later they were published. At the very beginning of that little booklet, he says that non-dual realization, how do you come on to, how does the author come on to that non-dual realization in Ashtavakra? He says, go to chapter 15, start reading from verse 4 and read through. You will see how one comes, comes to that, that realization. <laughs> That's why I selected this. And I mean, after reading that, I went back to it. I had read this, but then I noticed how remarkable that sequence is. So we will uh, focus on that tomorrow onwards. What about the path of love? Bhakti? What is the role? You see, all of these yogas, they are paths. 
There is an interrelationship, they help each other, but there is also an independent nature of each. They, they conceive of the spiritual problem in a unique way and then they get an answer. Uh, so what I mean by that is, we have just now seen, the path of knowledge says the problem is ignorance of our real nature. If only you would know what you truly are. I'm literally quoting Vivekananda. He would say this to his American disciples. If only you knew what you truly are. That is the path of knowledge. Ignorance is the problem, knowledge is the solution. Ignorance of our real nature, knowledge of our real nature. But the path of meditation, Patanjali Yoga says, the fluctuations of the mind, the disturbance of the mind, the scatteredness of the mind is the problem. And concentration of the mind and settling down the movements of the mind is the solution. Chitta vikshepa is the problem. Chitta ekagrata is the method. Very important insight. It's a different insight from what we are talking about right now, but very important. I was reading this, I'll tell you the name tomorrow, uh, an economist who won the Nobel Prize several years ago. Amazing observation, long before internet and social media and all of this. He says, information consumes attention. Therefore, it stands to reason that a wealth of information will result in a poverty of attention. Long before the internet. Amazing insight. It's something worth keeping um, in mind. Patanjali, more than maybe 2,500, 3,000 years ago, he got this insight. That focus is most important. By sheer focus, one can make a spiritual breakthrough. I can think of Advaita teachers howling in protest. No, you need knowledge, but anyway. Then there is this other path that if God does exist, a supremely beneficent, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient reality, all loving and all good, wouldn't that be the easiest way to attain fulfillment, to overcome our problems, instead of our puny little efforts at struggle by ourselves? The path of love, path of faith, there in bhakti yoga, the problem is seen as lack of faith in God. And the solution is faith, bhakti, devotion to God. That itself is the solution. We'll see how. It's a path of love and the path of devotion uh, and the path of knowledge. In the Bhagavad Gita, when confronted by these two, enlightenment and love, uh, Arjuna asks Krishna, which is better? Which is better? And Krishna says straight away, there is no hesitation, the path of love is better. Why? Ashtavakra would be disappointed, annoyed. <laughs> he says, because the path of knowledge, the, the path of the unmanifest, see here the same problem again, it's knowledge but not knowledge of an object. That which we are is not manifest as an object. Therefore, if you say it's knowledge, and yet every attempt at knowledge will fail. It's difficult, he says. Krishna says, for those who are embodied, this path is extremely difficult. 
Embodied does not mean just because there's a body. Vivekananda, you see, has a body, and Sri Ramakrishna is a body, and uh, so all enlightened masters, you see, the body is there. Jivan Mukta, enlightened while living, free while living, yeah, body is there. But identification with the body, strong identification, I am this, and this is I. This is called double uh, identification. In Sanskrit, Anyonyadhyasa. What is Anyonyadhyasa? I am this. What are you? This. And what is this? I. You see, mutual identification. If you have that, and unfortunately just about all of us have it, then it's very difficult to break free, step aside from that. Uh, we will try it tomorrow. <laughs> Trying to step aside from that and take a look if we can see what is being said by Ashtavakra. In that case, he says, it's easier to catch on, to, uh, to hold on to bhakti. And there are many excellencies of bhakti which we will see. Um, it also stands to reason. If I have a capacity to reason, I should take up the path of knowledge. If I have a capacity to love, why should I not take up the path of bhakti? If I have a capacity to work, why not take up the path of karma yoga? I have a capacity to meditate and sit quietly and focus inwards, why not the path of meditation? And all of them work. We have all these capacities, the cognitive, the effective and the cognitive. These are the three broad parts of our, our psychological capacities. If we have them, all the yogas, we should deploy them. If we really want enlightenment, if all these avenues are open to us, why should we not use all of them? So all of them are useful. Bhakti is most useful also. So we will take up both and we will pursue both, as um, Swami Vivekananda said, all of them. Each of them individually can take you to enlightenment and um, they can in harmony. He recommended a harmony of them. See, right here, a traditional teacher of Advaita Vedanta will object. The objection is that um, it's not that bhakti can take you to the goal or meditation can take you to the goal. Only knowledge takes you to the goal. He said, fine, granted. But even then, a traditional teacher of Advaita Vedanta will never reject the usefulness of bhakti. We are claiming for bhakti a much higher ro role. That Directly it can. It's sufficient in itself. Wonderful. Uh, and all the dualistic schools of Vedanta actually say that. Bhakti is enough. The Gaudiya school of Vedanta says that bhakti by itself is enough to solve all our problems, to give us fulfillment directly, take us to God-realization, attain moksha and beyond everything. But let us grant the non-dualist, let's grant Ashtavakra, Shankara, their structure and there also bhakti is very, very useful. Why? The real problem with um, the path of uh, enlightenment, of knowledge, you will see it's not all that difficult. You will see tomorrow. It's not really all that difficult to get what they're trying to say. Even though it's not an object, it still will be not very difficult to realize what they're trying to point out. But then what happens is, this works initially at the level of our intellect, at the level of our understanding. The desires which suck us out into the world, which embroil us in the ups and downs of the world, they are at the level of the heart. Initially, at least, the intellect and the heart are not congruent. And what, what I mean by that is, there are so many things that we understand. 
but maybe our feelings and emotions don't match our understanding. Often our understandings go run far ahead of our emotions. Otherwise, if we know something to be good, we should also feel that it is good and then it will be very easy to do it. You see, our actions are guided more by our emotions and feelings rather than by our knowledge. The Greek philosopher said, to know the good is to be good. Immediately we say that, no, that's not true. We know so many things are good, but we don't do it. That's our whole moral ethical dilemma. What he meant was, that is the ideal case. That is what it should be. If we know something to be good, we should be able to implement it in our lives. We should be able to lead our lives by it. But that's assuming the emotions have been worked out, the mind has been purified. That's where bhakti comes in. Where? In the path of knowledge. In the path of knowledge, devotion harnesses all the desires and channels them towards God. Towards Saguna Brahman, Brahman with, with attributes. And therefore, the path to enlightenment, the realization of Aham Brahmasmi becomes clear. Much, much easier. Much more straightforward. So even in a secondary role, Advaita Vedanta will not deny the importance of bhakti. And nobody does. The traditional commentators of Advaita Vedanta, they all accept bhakti has a very powerful role. Shankara himself says, of all the um, um, practices necessary for, the, for enlightenment, ultimately for the arising of knowledge, Bhakti is the most powerful, he says. Of course, there, there's a twist in the tale because he says, then he defines bhakti as the, the passionate search for self-realization, not love of God. <laughs> uh, meditation is very powerful and useful. Focus. And karma, action for purifying the mind is useful. So, Advaita Vedanta accepts all of these. Even in a secondary sense. Uh, as an aid to enlightenment. There's no, no dismissing it. But initially they appear different. That's why we have enlightenment and love. Um, Sri Ramakrishna asked Narendranath, Vivekananda, so suppose you wear this fly, like a honeybee or a fly, and there's a bowl of nectar. What would you do? Would you jump into it or would you sip nectar from the side? And Narendra said that I would sit on the side and then sip the nectar because if I jumped into it, I might drown and die. And Sri Ramakrishna said this is the ocean of immortality. If you jump into it, you don't die. You become immortal. You, that means you become one with the ocean. That is one with the ultimate reality. That is enlightenment, the path of knowledge. And what Vivekananda wanted was, I'll sit on the side and sip. That's also all right. I'll retain my individuality to some extent so that I can enjoy God. Swami Turiyanandaji, in later life, he would say that uh, I am He, Soham, I am that. He says Vivekananda could say that. It doesn't come easily to us. To us. So I say, Thou, Thou, my Lord. And all of these we know how beautifully Hanuman um, harmonizes. When Ramachandra asked him, what do you think of me? And Hanuman says, as this body, thou my Lord, you are the uh, Lord, I am, my, I am thy servant. As this sentient being, uh, you are the whole, I am your part. And as the Atman, as pure consciousness, you and I are one. Which one? 
This is my conclusion. Deha buddhya dasoaham, jiva buddhya twadangshaka, atma buddhya tu twamevaham, iti me nishchitamatihi. This is my firm conviction. So, both. And that's the path we'll walk. Um, questions in this audience? And if our IT team could look at questions there. So anybody wants to ask a question here and make a, yeah. Then we'll take a question if there are any from the internet audience. Pranam Maharaj, uh, my name is Sangeeta. Uh, could you kindly comment a little more on this model of silent teaching or silent receiving? How does it really work? And at what level does this connection or this upadesha happen? Thank you. Silent teaching, you see, that is the highest. And it's the transmission of direct enlightenment. Now that requires a student and a teacher at that level. Not always though. So for example, Ramana Maharshi could do it for many people. There are many, many examples of, he would just sit quietly and people would come to him with questions. They would sit around and they would never get around to asking the question. But they would go away with the problem being solved. A variation of this is in the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, we find many devotees coming and sitting near Sri Ramakrishna. And often they would find the question which, which they had come, that was being discussed. Sri Ramakrishna is talking about that. That would also happen. I'm reminded of, a, I mean, you, I cannot talk about silence. You can see the contradiction there, right there, right there. <laughs> yes. If that could be done, that would be the easiest of all. The problem is, if I come here and keep silent, you might think it's pretty profound, the first session. The second time I do that, you will get bored of it and, <laughs> and decide to go home. Uh -huh. So it has to be conveyed in speech. I'm reminded of this Zen uh, story of a student who asked, I want to get enlightenment, and the, who is the best Zen master? This is the thing that we have this mismatch between the student and the master. So best Zen master, not knowing the best Zen master, the most famous one might not be the one suitable to him. So he goes there and the master just sits in silence, doesn't answer any question at all. After some time he got exasperated and then he goes to the um, second best Zen master who does speak but in quants, you know, this cryptic little sentences. What does it mean, the sound of one hand clapping, the what is your face before you are born? If you find the Buddha on your path, kill him. What does it mean? He gives up there also. And finally goes to the third best Zen master, who daily gives morning, afternoon, evening classes and voluminous notes. And then the student said, my God, you are the best. I was there with those two useless fellows earlier. And, and then the master said, you are the useless fellow. They are far superior to me. But the thing is, it, we can't use it. <laughs> so, yes. Um, yes. Is there a question from the internet, internet audience? A question from... Question from Kailash. 
Advaita says the self is not an object. So knowledge of self cannot be acquired as one might acquire worldly knowledge. However, Bhakti seeks to objectify the self into an ishta or a personal god who can be studied, embodied, prayed to, confided in, praised and even blamed for our troubles. How are the two paths not in conflict? Two paths not in, how the two paths not in conflict, yes. Very well put. If you are saying ultimately what you are talking about is not an object, pure, pure self. And in bhakti, at least from an Advaitic perspective, this is from an Advaitic perspective, what do you worship as Saguna Brahman? It is that very non-objective, pure subject, existence, consciousness, bliss with attributes, you objectify it and you are worshipping it. So Saguna Brahman, the god of love, the god of dualism, the god of, of religion, is ultimately that non-objective self, which is not an object. So how, and yet bhakti is all about seeing God as an object. Maybe a very rarefied object, but still. How are they not in conflict? You see, I'll tell you how they are not in conflict, but let me tell you first how they are in conflict. This was the problem all throughout and see how religion evolves. From non-belief totally to the feeling that there is a power beyond all of this, a transcendent power, something is there. So you end up worshipping God in a particular image or a particular form. Then came uh, the great insight. That object is not God. That object, the thing which you are worshipping cannot be God. So, the, the tremendous, these edicts against image worship in the Abrahamic religions. Thou shalt not worship a graven image. Why? Because it's a fact. It's not God. You have, if you are worshipping the image as God, you are making a mistake. I mean, it's another matter that, for example, the Hindus never worshipped the image itself as God. But anyway, but that's an advance. You realize that a thing is not God. Not only that, allied with this was the idea that multiple things, quite different from each other apparently, they were worshipped as God, so the realization was beyond all of these um, so-called divinities, there is one real divinity, the monotheistic understanding. So no worship of images and uh, one reality, which is not uh, an object out there. But there also, it's still objective, if you think about it. If you think about a god in heaven, or a, it's not a physical object, but still it's a conception. Uh, our lord, uh, you know, the lord, the ruler of the universe, creator of the universe, is it you, the pure subject? No, 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 it is something different from me. In that case, it's an object. If you believe in it, him, then it's still, and you're objectifying it, because it's different from you. If it appears to you in some way as a voice, it's an object. It's not a physical object, it's still an object. So that problem still has not been overcome. It's still an object. From an Advaitic perspective, you have not overcome it by saying that that thing is not God. God is formless. But formless object you are thinking about. Then it goes further. How it is solved in Hinduism, in Vedanta, and Advaita Vedanta is this that what you call an 
pure subject and you call an object, the object is not something different from the pure subject. You see, we begin by making a clear distinction. All of these are objects and what we are talking about is the pure subject and none of this is that. Is that what we are talking about? When we understand what we are talking about, that completely transcendent subject, pure consciousness, yet it is I. And it is present right here. So that pure, that pure subject is immanent. It's present here. It's not only beyond all objects, it is present in and through all objects. One uh, sadhu in Uttarakhand put it this way. You know, I often speak about drig drishya, seer and the seeing, separating the two. Uh, whatever you can see, whatever you can objectify, is not you the seer. You are the seer, everything else is the object. The seer is different from the seen. And the knower is different from the known. The witness is different from that which is illumined. Drashta is different from drishya. Then the sadhu says, remember, he says in, in Hindi, those who keep on saying this seer and the seeing distinctions, they are unripe <laughs> Vedantins. Why? Here is a crucial thing. We are going, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We'll come back to it tomorrow. He says, I'll tell you in Hindi and then I'll, uh, uh, I'll translate. He says, Ye to thik hai ki drashta drishya se alag hai. It is true that the witness, you, the seer, you are different from that which is seen, clearly. But here is the deeper question. That which is seen, is, is, is that different from you? Seer is different from the seen. But is the seen different from the seer? What does that mean? If one thing is different from the other, the other also should be different. If the, this book is different from this book, then this book is also different from this book. We are two different things. Can't they, shouldn't they be separate? But no. The water is different from all the waves, bubble and foam. How? The water need not be a wave, need not be a bubble, need not be foam. It can be water vapor in the sky. It can be water in a glass. But is the wave, the foam, the bubble, are they different from water? No. The gold, it's not a necklace or a bracelet or a ring. The different gold ornaments. Why do I say that? Because the gold need not be a necklace. It could be something else. Even if it's a necklace, it was not a necklace earlier. And it need not be a necklace later. But the necklace necessarily has to be gold. If it's a golden necklace, it necessarily has to be gold. It can't be anything other than gold. Similarly, we'll see more depth tomorrow and experientially we'll try to see. That which appears as object to the subject, the subject is different from the object. But is the object different from the subject? Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta says, not really. It looks different, but it's not really different. It, it's like everything that you see in a dream, the people that you see in a dream, the places that you see in a dream, even yourself who are, you are there in the dream, you the dreamer are different from all of them. Why different? Because you can exist without them. Them means the contents of your dream. But the contents of your dream cannot exist without you the dreamer. Is this... Uh, 
Is, is the example, uh, you know, some are going into dream state <laughs> to experientially you know, experience it. You can remain without those people you see, saw in the dream. The things in the imaginations in the dream, they can go away, you are still there. But they cannot remain without you. That existence consciousness bliss, which is the pure subject which you are when you say, Aham Brahmasmi. But what about the entire universe which appeared to you? Is that apart from you? No. It is in you and through you and has no existence apart from you as Brahman. Therefore, what we earlier called an object is actually nothing but the subject. Appearing. The universe is your dream. How does that help? Very interesting thing. Now consider the old problem of image worship. Yes. It's not God. Don't worship it. Then the Hindu will come and explain. No, no, no. The picture, the image... We don't take the paper and the ink to be God, or we don't take the wood to be God, we don't take the metal to be God. We do Bhagavad Buddhi in it. We invoke the presence of the Divine because the Divine pervades everything. In Hinduism, Swami Vivekananda said, we worship a transcendent immanent God. God who is beyond everything and yet present in everything. So everything that you experience is pervaded by the Divine. Therefore, you can specially invoke the the presence of the divine in a suitable receptacle might be an image, a picture or a symbol and then it could be the fire it could be something and, and then, then you can proceed to worship but you're worshipping all the time you're worshipping God this is the general explanation and it works only because you, ex you understand that the divine is immanent not just beyond everything but also in and through everything because everything is in, in and through everything then only it makes sense. But this is not my final answer. The final answer is even deeper and very and amazing. It's a non-dualistic answer. The final answer is this. It is something given by the Puri Shankaracharya, the present Shankaracharya of Puri. He said, it's not even what you just said, that uh, it is not God, but we invoke the presence of the divine because the divine pervades everything. We invoke the presence. We can invoke the presence of the divine in a special place and then worship it, um, worship the divine there. He said, no. The, word, the, the secret of, the deepest secret of image worship is not that. That which is not God, you invoke the presence of the divine there in order to worship the divine. Not even that. You invoke the presence of the divine in that image to remove the error of thinking that it is not divine. That is true. Ultimately, if Brahman alone is real, the world is an appearance, then whatever is an appearance must be nothing other than Brahman. Every bit of the so-called snake must be the rope. Therefore, it's not that the image is not God. The idea that the image is not God is erroneous. The idea that it is an image is erroneous. The image is just a name and form. The reality behind it is always has been choicelessly nothing but Brahman. So there you have the meeting of the two. Now, he asked a question which has answered the entire theme of the <laughs> retreat. I think we'll call it uh, quits tonight. Oh.
शातिशाशाति हरि ओं तत्सत्मकृष्णारूपणमस्तु